Good morning, church. Happy Resurrection Day. Our scripture reading this morning will be from 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 22. And uh, please follow on your Bibles or uh, in the bulletin or also on the screen behind me. So church, hear God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Would you join me in prayer? Our holy God, creator, sustainer, loving Father, Blessed Redeemer, we praise you and give all glory and honor to you this day. There is no one or nothing that deserves worship, only you. Thank you for seeking us even as we giggled and frolicked in sin. You had every right to unload all your wrath and judgment upon us. Yet you restrained your justice, allowing us to taste common grace. And you did the unthinkable by becoming human like us, 
among us, yet doing so without sin. Where we all failed, you succeeded perfectly in every way. You willingly surrendered yourself as a substitute, taking my sin as if it were yours. You took my shame and suffering and death as yours. Even as I arrogantly defied you, you loved and changed me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. All of us here today are here because of your amazing grace. Some have been changed radically and eternally by it. Others have that opportunity by your grace. We pray that you show yourself grand and glorious and mighty to save today. Pierce the calloused heart. Transform the rebellious. Make your grace to abound in us and through us. Make your glory resplendent before us and before this community. All this we pray in the name of our liberator, deliverer, savior, your son Jesus. Amen. I was reading in a recent theological study about the state of theology in America and it was reported by this study that 52% of Americans agree that Jesus was a great teacher. 55% believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Contrary to historical Christian doctrine, he is God's son, he is eternal God, yet more than half did not believe that to be true. 66% believe the biblical accounts of Jesus' resurrection. That's pretty breathtaking, pretty encouraging. That's good news. 20% do not believe them to be accurate, and 14% are unsure. So two out of three believe the resurrection accounts are completely trustworthy. They are accurate. 55% believe he's merely a created being and not God. That's not so great. A lot of confusion, a lot of conflict in the human mind in our modern culture. The most disturbing thing that the report rendered was that 59%, almost 6 out of 10, in the age grouping, 18 to 34, do not believe the bodily resurrection accounts recorded in the Scripture to be accurate. The church has a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do. Resurrection is critical to Christianity. If there is no bodily resurrection, there is no Christianity. Christ followers, us, many of us, have not helped the matter. We tend to emphasize it just once a year. We get excited for Easter, as well we should. But maybe we would serve Christ better by using some different language 
One of the things I've noticed is that society equates Easter language with lots of things. The arrival of spring, the spring holiday, spring break, school breaks, beach vacations, winter's over, the beach is here, new clothes, candy, Easter egg hunts. I'm not saying that there's anything necessarily wrong with any of those things, but you begin to understand that Easter has become this huge pot filled with lots of things, among which Christ is just one. I think we unintentionally are contributing to the confusion about Easter. So this morning, in order to help us maybe be more clear in our understanding and the way that we may live our lives day by day. Actually, Resurrection Day occurs 52 times a year, doesn't it? Maybe we should explore this a little further. So I have four questions I want to pose this morning and hopefully guide our discussion. First of all, what is resurrection? Do we understand what resurrection is? in the modern culture? What if the resurrection is untrue? What if it's untrue? Most of society is living as if it is untrue. What evidence, number three, what evidence suggests the resurrection is true? And number four, what are the resurrection's implications? Four questions. Hopefully, I'm going to supply you with the answers and challenge your thinking, expand our thinking in an effort that we might be more clear in the way that we talk, in the way that we live, the things that we believe. So what is the resurrection? Think for a moment about significant influences in our culture. New ageism is much more prominent than anyone thinks in our culture today. It has taken its roots or has its roots in Hinduism and the tenet particularly of reincarnation has invaded our culture. These ideas of reincarnation devalue and minimize death and life in many ways. What about video games? Again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with playing a video game. But I want you to think about the primary, as I understand it, I'm not a video game player, but talking to others and observing, the one thing that seems to be at the forefront is being killed and getting a new life. Again, playing these games where constantly experiencing killing or killing other things and then giving new life or having new life devalues our understanding and appreciation for life and death. The Marvel Universe, it's an alternate universe. Is there really an alternate universe? Is dead really dead? And is life really life? Universalism is pervasive. I see this every time I encounter death in our culture. I spend time as a pastor in hospitals and mortuaries, 
talking to people who have faced this most critical, crucial of issues known to us, and that is death. And it amazes me how many people equate death with automatically heaven. If you die, it's automatically assumed that you're now in a better place, a better state. It doesn't matter how you lived your life or what you believed in life. It's universal belief and practice. So Christians need to be clear in these matters, what Scripture teaches. Death is real. Death is certain. Death is final. Death is judgment. Yes, judgment. Death is the ultimate wrath of God poured out upon sinful, rebellious creatures. It's not a game. It's not something to be cavalierly dismissed. It's something that needs to be understood clearly. Resurrection, on the other hand, is radical. It's unique. There's only been one to this point. One resurrection. It's not a presumption. It's a person. Do people understand the meaning and significance of resurrection? Many have attempted to explain away Jesus' empty tomb because they don't understand resurrection. And I grant you, resurrection is a difficult concept to comprehend. A recent article that I was reading offered 10 theories or explanations for Jesus' empty tomb. Let me just run through these for our own uh, sometimes amusement. There's the stolen body theory. The Jewish leaders and Roman soldiers advocated for this idea, as we will understand, because the disappearance of Jesus' body was certainly an affront to each of those groups. They contend that Jesus' disciples stole the body and propagated the lie that he had risen. Now, this is good because it admits that the tomb was empty but it was never seriously accepted. Why? Because we're talking about a group of ragtag Galilean fishermen who were scared of their own shadow, who suddenly found the gumption, the boldness, to go forth and take on trained, highly competent killing machines known as Roman soldiers and overpower them, move the rock, take the body out, when in fact, we know they were hiding when the news broke that Jesus had risen. There's the swoon theory that Jesus fainted from the emotional and physical trauma he had experienced. He was presumed dead after the beating, after the crucifixion, and laid in a tomb. And there with some rest and lying in the cool temperatures of the tomb, he suddenly revived this again admits the empty tomb, but lest I remind you, Jesus was whipped 39 times with a cat of nine tails. Those cords of leather were attached to bone and metal and rock fragments that dug into the flesh of the victim, the object. And when pulled, they ripped the flesh. They tore chunks of flesh out. 
39 lashes, not 40, because 40 typically proved to be the death knell. That's when the victim succumbed to death. He couldn't survive beyond that. So 39. And yet at that point, right at the brink of death, he was then crucified, nailed to a Roman cross, which again was one of the most, if not the most brutal forms of execution known in human existence. Thriving upon dehydration of the body and suffocation. The body would suffocate under its own weakness over a period of hours. And we're to believe that Jesus experienced this, then was laid in a tomb where after 24 to 36 hours of rest and cool temperatures, he suddenly revived, got up with enough strength to move the rock that it took multiple strong men to put into place, and then overpowered those same guards himself. And then when he encountered the followers, his friends, he was able to convince them that he had resurrected. There's the hallucination theory. Disciples were overwhelmed by grief and simply imagined seeing Jesus. Well, scientific evidence suggests that while it is common for people to hallucinate about seeing a loved one who has died, it is not, it is not possible for masses of people to see the same imagery. And so this is just simply something that's grasping at straws. And the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers could simply have produced the body and put all of these rumors to bed. There's the mistaken identity theory. Someone else was crucified in the place of Jesus, either purposefully or by mistake. And everyone mistakenly thought it was Jesus, even his mother and even his closest and dearest friends. And to think that Jesus' enemies did not make sure that they killed the right person is just kind of bizarre, isn't it? Then there's the copy of a pagan myth theory that the New Testament writers merely copied and supposed resurrection stories about mythical gods, ancient stories. This does not explain the empty tomb. And no Greek or Roman myth ever spoke of the literal incarnation of a monotheistic God by way of a virgin birth, followed by his death and resurrection. There are some parallel accounts of a dying and rising God, but they first appeared a hundred years after Christ, not before. There's the wrong tomb theory that in their grief and Confusion, the women went to the wrong tomb on resurrection morning. And seeing it empty, they assumed Jesus had risen. But if they went to the wrong tomb, then there must have been a right tomb. And who would have known the right tomb? Joseph of Arimathea. It belonged to him after all. The Roman soldiers would have known and the Jewish leaders would have known. Why didn't someone just simply correct the mistake and produce the body? Then there's the twin theory that Jesus had an identical twin. I told you it would get amusing. But if they're twins, how did they decide who was going to die? Did they draw straws? 
Did one convince the other that he needed to encounter crucifixion for the good of perpetuating a lie? No twin is ever mentioned, and it does not explain again the empty tomb. Then there's the alien theory that Jesus was an alien with advanced abilities and technology. While this was never a matter of ancient (laughs) minds or thoughts, first century knew nothing about the theory of aliens. Then there's the contradictions theory. The disciples made some contradictions in their reporting of the facts. Matthew, for instance, talks about one angel who spoke to the disciples when they arrived. And John says there were two angels. And because there's not agreement, which can easily be explained if one cares to listen, But because of these discrepancies, then they say that the disciples' accounts cannot be believed. And then there's the resurrection theory, that Jesus did exactly what he predicted he would do and what the Bible claimed he would do. It's not easy to understand resurrection because it's supernatural. It's radical. Jesus raised people from the dead all the time, but those people succumb to death ultimately. The scripture says it is appointed for man to die once, then comes the judgment. Jesus died and resurrected. God raised him from the dead. Resurrection is new life that is not subject to death ever again. Not subject to corruption ever again. One has to work pretty hard and exhaust a lot of faith to believe that there was no resurrection. But what if the resurrection is not true? Thomas Jefferson, considered a great man by our nation's history, was supposedly a religious man, but he could not accept the idea of miracles. In fact, he edited his own Bible, taking out all the miracles that were recorded. His own edited version of Scripture deleted all supernatural references. His edition of the Bible ended with these words. There laid they Jesus and rolled a great stone at the mouth of the sepulcher and departed. Contrast that to our own Bibles that end with John saying, Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. He indeed is alive and is returning. In our text, the Apostle Paul tells us what happens if the resurrection is not true. If it's not true, he says, Christ himself has not been raised. This is fatal to Christianity. This is fatal to what we believe. It does not matter that Muhammad or Buddha or Joseph Young are still in their graves and did not resurrect, but it is absolutely critical that Jesus resurrected from the dead. If he did not resurrect, then, Paul goes on, our preaching is vain. The gospel is nothing but a fairy tale if Jesus did not resurrect from the dead. The message is meaningless. It's empty. It holds no hope. Our faith is vain, he says. It is empty. It's worthless. There's a common misunderstanding in our culture today that you simply need to have more faith. If you have more faith, you can do anything. Faith is not about more. Faith is about the object in which faith is placed. You can have 
You can have tons and tons of faith that you can fly. But I don't think there's anyone in here who can fly. It doesn't matter how vehemently you believe it. The object, the premise is failed. But the object of our faith, Jesus said, if we just had the faith the size of a mustard seed. I'm not sure. I haven't done any research lately. I haven't planted any mustard seeds. But the last time I checked, a mustard seed was about like a little flake of pepper, black pepper. Just that much faith, he said, and mountains will move. Why? Because the faith placed properly in the object who is Christ, God's son, God eternal, creator of everything, sustainer of everything, upholds everything by the word of his mouth. Just that much faith in him is powerful and victorious. The size of faith is not the issue. It's the object in which the faith is placed. Paul says, if, if there is no resurrection, the apostles and all preachers of the gospel are liars. They've misrepresented God. Now, I remind you that the apostles were threatened with death for preaching the resurrection. They were threatened. These same men, if I remind you, Peter, when Jesus was arrested and was being interrogated, Peter was intimidated by a little girl. Big old brash, impulsive, compulsive Peter. This mountain of a man, this fisherman, man's man. And this little girl accused him of being a friend of Jesus and he wilted. And yet, a few days after the resurrection... Peter was willing to stand where Jesus had stood, walk the streets where Jesus walked, toting his cross to Golgotha in order to die, and Peter was willing to preach that he was risen. If it did not happen, they misrepresented God and did themselves a disservice because each and every one of them ultimately died for preaching the resurrection. If the resurrection is untrue, then sin's power is unbroken and we're still all trapped in our sin and we cannot escape. We have no hope. Sin, death, and hell still rule over us. We have no champion who has delivered us from sin, death, and hell and none is forthcoming. You're left to your own devices before God's perfect judgment. If there is no resurrection, all those who died in Christ have perished. All your loved ones who put their faith and hope in Jesus have perished. They've simply been extinguished. They're gone. Paul perished. Augustine perished. Calvin perished. Luther perished. Edwards perished. Spurgeon perished. Billy Graham perished. They've all just perished. Appeared on the landscape of history for a time and now are gone because the resurrection is not true. Their hope is vain. If there is no resurrection, then Christians are the most pitiful people 
in all the world. If Christ did not resurrect, we, we hope in a lie. We've been deceived. We've squandered this life. We'd have been better off to have been hedonists and just enjoyed the time we had on this earth. Without resurrection, there is no future. And we are to be pitied. What evidence suggests the resurrection is true? I mean, if the resurrection is the heart and soul of the Christian faith, then what evidence suggests that it's true? Wilbur Smith said the meaning of the resurrection is a theological matter, but the fact of the resurrection is a historical matter. The nature of the resurrection body of Jesus may be a mystery, but the fact that the body disappeared from the tomb is a matter to be decided upon by historical evidence. Verse 17 in our text, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Our belief in this great teaching is not based upon some religious feeling. It's not based upon an ancient myth or legend. It's not an isolated rumor, but a historical fact with evidence to support it. So what's the evidence? Well, there's an empty tomb. There's an empty tomb. No one is arguing that the tomb was not empty. That's been a failed argument from the very beginning. So what happened to it? Did someone steal it? If so, whom? If so, why? And where is it now? Was it the Roman guards? You see, their reputations, their training, their very lives were at stake. They've been posted to guard under the authority of Caesar. If something happened to that body, if something happened to that grave, they'd be held responsible, which meant they'd be executed for failure. It was serious business for them. Not a game. What about the Jewish leaders? Why did they lobby for the guards? And if they stole the body, why not produce it and prove the lie that they claim was being told? The disciples? The disciples? Is that really, actually, <laughs> a serious proposal that the disciples stole the body? These men who were hiding, hiding behind closed locked doors when the news came that Jesus was risen. And then why go out and preach the resurrection in the face of this lie? Why die for a lie? Who does that? And Paul says there are these witnesses. There was Cephas, there was the disciples, the 500 brothers at one time. James, the apostles, and Paul says himself is included in that. And I remind you, Paul was a fervent, diligent enemy of Christ until he wasn't. And what changed all of that? He encountered the risen Christ on the way to Damascus to persecute more Christians because he hated Christ until he didn't. And it was the resurrected Christ that convinced him. The writings that we have available to us, there are four gospel accounts. There's Paul's letters that fill the New Testament. There's the historical accounts written by people who were not necessarily friendly to the Christian community. All written very soon after the event 
and no one was able to disprove what was written. Then there's the cultural impact. We have followers who changed from worshiping on the Sabbath to worshiping on the first day of the week because that was the day of the resurrection. And it's been going on ever since. You're gathered here today as a testimony to this cultural change. The observance of Christ's birth at Christmas has continued year after year after year. And lest I remind you that all of human history is divided by this event. We have before Christ and after Christ. As much as we've tried to change that in our modern vernacular. We have the prophecies, Old Testament prophecies proven to be true on innumerable issues. Predicted the, the oppression, the slavery that would be meted out to God's people, the Israelites, and their subsequent liberations. Detailed and predicted the destruction of Jerusalem. Detailed and predicted countless other things. And then we're suddenly to think that they're wrong about Jesus that they can't be trusted on this matter, this one matter? And what about the changed followers? Scattered and denied knowing Jesus, hid from Jesus, yet suddenly they became the most powerful preaching force imaginable. They stood in the same streets where Jesus walked to his crucifixion. They stood against those who murdered Jesus, against their threats and intimidating attempts to force them to recant. And they preached his resurrection until their own executions. What about the church? It's estimated that there are two to two and a half billion people today who are avowed followers of Christ. We may quibble over the numbers, but rest assured, 2,000 years after his ministry, the fact that there are so many believers is a testimony to something miraculous that has occurred how does this happen apart from the resurrection why do people risk everything to gather and worship Christ if he be not raised it may not have cost you much to be here this morning but in other parts of the world for people to gather and blatantly avow and worship Christ is a risky proposition may even cost them their lives and yet they do it we're gathered here today because his resurrection compels us to be here. Many of you here today have been radically changed by this truth. Somewhere, at some time, some moment in your life, you encountered Christ much the same way that the Apostle Paul did, and you were changed by this truth of his death, burial, and resurrection. Many of you here may be wrestling with this thought. God is pressing upon your heart, pressing into your mind that Christ died for your sin and was resurrected for your justification. And apart from that, there is no hope. Like King Agrippa, you're almost persuaded. I pray even at this moment that the Spirit of God will break through and compel you to believe It's our fourth question. What are the resurrection's implications? What are the resurrection's implications for us here today? Well, first, I would suggest to you that the resurrection testifies to the sovereign power of God. 
Believing in the resurrection is to believe in God. If God exists and if he created the universe and has power over it, then he has power to raise the dead. Only the one who created life can resurrect it after death. Secondly, the resurrection validates Jesus' claim to be the Son of God, the Messiah. In Matthew 16, 4, you remember Jesus was being asked for signs. They were saying, show us a sign to prove that you are who you claim to be. And Jesus said, ah, you're in an evil and adulterous generation seeking for signs, but no sign will be given except one. What was it? The sign of Jonah, he called it, which was pointing toward his resurrection. His resurrection was the sign from heaven that authenticated his ministry, his identity. It provides irrefutable proof that he is the Savior of the world. In our text here this morning, verse 3 says, He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he appeared to countless witnesses. The resurrection proves his sinless character and divine nature. Psalm 16.10 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. This is repeated again in Acts chapter 13. It says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. The resurrection validates the Old Testament prophecies foretelling his suffering, death, and resurrection. Acts 17, 2 and 3, Paul went in, as was his custom on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Job said, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. 1 Corinthians 15 here, verses 3 and 4, I delivered you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Another implication of this resurrection is that it authenticates his own claims to rise on the third day. In Mark 8, 31, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Mark 9, 31, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Jesus, friend, now Lazarus died. And he waited. He waited till the fourth day to go to Mary and Martha. And when he arrived, they were so distraught. Why didn't you come? Why didn't you come? Our brother might still be alive if you had come. And Jesus looked at both and he said, look, <laughs> I'm the resurrection and the life. I didn't need to be here to prevent death. You see, I have authority over death. By the word, Lazarus come forth. 
And this dead man, four days dead, who should have been rotting and deteriorating in a grave, came forth, wrapped up in those death clothes. And he said, set him free, turn him loose. He's not dead anymore. I am the resurrection and the life, he said. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The resurrection confirms this. The resurrection proves this. The resurrection is the first fruits of this for all of us who believe in Christ. John wrote later in his first letter, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son of life has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. There's no universalism here. There's no equating death with entrance into heaven. Only those who are in Christ, the one who is resurrected from the dead, have any hope of seeing heaven. Only those who are in Christ. It doesn't matter how long you've been in church. It doesn't matter how many positions you've held in church. It doesn't matter how much theology you have in your brain. If you are not in Christ, there is no heaven awaiting you. It pains me to share this with you. But it is the truth. And if you don't get this right, if you don't come to the realization of this truth and embrace the resurrected Christ, you have no hope beyond this life. It is you who are the most to be pitied because you have heard the gospel, you have heard the truth, and you have rejected it because of your own pride. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is why the resurrection is so critical. It's so important. His resurrection assures us of our own resurrection if we are in Him. Christ's resurrection means we have a Savior who is able to deliver us from sin's grip. John 3.18 says that apart from this, we have already been judged. By drawing our first breath in this life, we stand in the dock. We are under the judgment of God. And the fact that he has not executed us is simply common grace until we receive his special grace through Christ Jesus. What does this mean? It means that sin separates us from God forever apart from an intervention. It means that we have no means for saving ourselves, that God will bring justice to bear upon all sin and rebellion. Not one, not one, mind you, not one sinful thought will go past the judgment of God. Not one. There's not one sin that you can atone for in and of your own efforts. Not one. If it's not under the blood of Christ, it's not been sufficiently dealt with. And God's justice will bear upon all sin and rebellion. Every person will face his justice for sin. The only alternative is to have Christ bear your judgment. The only alternative, the only successful alternative is to have Christ bear your sin and your shame and your guilt before God. And to say, you belong to me. Father, I have this child 
who I've adopted into my family. My blood has covered the sin. I stand as the mediator. I've exchanged my righteousness for this one's sin. It's possible only because of the resurrection. And Paul writes to the Romans, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Those who believe the gospel that all have sinned, including you, including me, and offended God's holiness. The penalty price is death, but Christ has paid it in our stead. The great exchange. He took your guilt and shame and gave you his righteousness. You are now justified in him. This is not true for you today. I pray, I plead with you that you would place your hope and trust in Christ. If you're here today and his resurrection, if you're here and in Christ today, his resurrection has particular implications for you beyond those that we just talked about. It imparts your service it impacts your service to the Lord here and now. 1 Corinthians 15, at the end of this chapter, verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your, your, the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So all that you do, if you're in Christ, the resurrection implies that all that you do in Christ is valuable to Christ and for Christ. It's not vain. It's not futile. It's not empty. It doesn't matter what it may look like in this world. But in Christ, it's living work. And it's also victorious and triumphant. We need not chafe under the weight and adversity of this present life. As Brandon read earlier, these are momentary light afflictions that we face. We don't have to give in to them. Soon and very soon, we will be free from this broken and sinful world. We can live now in the full light of our future promise. Live now in the light of this future promise because of the resurrection. Momentary light afflictions. We're not crushed. We're not despairing because we have a resurrected Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much for this incredible news that you planned before the foundation of the world and that you included the names of your elect part of that plan, that covenant. I pray today that the resurrection would grip our hearts like never before, that we would understand the power, the authority, the significance that it represents for us here today. As we live among brokenness, we live in darkness, so many souls and hearts that are devastated by sin that we might be your shining example. We might be reflections of your glory that may draw them, Lord, to the gospel and to you for forgiveness and everlasting life. That amid all this brokenness, Lord, your life might radiate and shine forth in us and through us, through this body of believers. 
for the sake of your kingdom and for your glory. Make it so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.